Hello, listeners. Welcome back to a new episode in our Party of Africa and Mythological Africans collaboration. The story shared today is titled The Husband's Revenge, and it's also from the book titled African Nights, Black Erotic Folk Tales. As always, if you enjoy the story, please feel free to share, like, rate, subscribe on all of your listening platforms. And as always, please feel free to let us know your thoughts on this episode and other episodes in our catalog. We hope that you enjoy listening. Welcome to Pod Save Africa. 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 Welcome. Now to set the mood for the story you're about to hear. Imagine it's a Friday night. You've come back from a busy day of work or of school or, you know, just going about your day. You're looking for some time to just chill, to rest, and maybe to feel present in your experience. And so you decide, maybe not Netflix today, maybe not something else. Let me be a part of Fireside Chat Fridays. So you walk over to the gathering that you hear the chatter of, you feel the warmth of, you feel, you hear the cackle of the fire. So you walk over, you sit on the logs, you feel the warmth of the presence of the people around you and of the fire beside you. You lean in closer to just embrace the experience you're having. You feel relaxed, you feel energized, you feel ready for the experience of sharing, of embracing African folklore and tales. Mm. Now onto the story. The Husband's Revenge, also from the Kordofan region in Sudan. So a man, having married a young wife, was soon afterwards visited in a dream by his father, who told him he must make a pilgrimage to Mecca. The next morning, the man got his baggage ready, went to his wife and said, Young wife, my father has appeared to me in a dream, and he begged me to go to Mecca, so I am leaving. But it may well be in the few days that we have been married that you have conceived. I hope to return before you bear the child so that I shall be near you when it is born. However, as soon as you become aware of the first signs of pregnancy, you must consult an old woman whom I shall appoint to look after you. Thereupon, the young husband took leave of his young wife and set out on his pilgrimage. Now, in the same town, there lived a muezzin who daily carried out his professional duties from the minaret in the great mosque. This Muezzin had seen the young wife and he had also heard from the lips of her husband that the latter was leaving on pilgrimage to Mecca. The Muezzin said to himself, this young wife will now be leading a very quiet life. 
a state she will find the more painful for having only had a few days in which to experience the joys of matrimony. But this young woman is so beautiful and cultivated, it seems to me that I could find no more agreeable occupation than to carry on the work begun by the pilgrim to Mecca. I shall therefore make friends with the old woman who has access to her. Perhaps she can help me satisfy the urge I have to console the young beauty in her solitude. So one day the Mirzin spoke to the old woman, asking her to come see him, as he had something important to discuss with her. Soon afterwards, the old woman came as he had asked, and finding himself alone with her, the Mirzin said, Woman, I have no doubt that out of your great experience, you will know that people's needs and desires vary considerably. Certainly, I know this, the old woman said, and I could tell you a great deal on the matter. Then the Mirzin said, You will know that while some men may take it into their heads that there is an absolute necessity for them to journey to Mecca, others may feel an equally intense urge, though, less, though in a less lofty part of the anatomy, for objects that are closer to hand. This surely you must know. Ah, the old woman said, there you are undoubtedly right. However, I do not suppose that you have asked me to come here in order to question me about the best road to Mecca. Uh, that is true, the Muezzin said. I have no intention whatever of making a pilgrimage to Mecca. Then perhaps, the old woman said, your urge is situated lower down inasmuch as the object of your desire is closer at hand. I could not have put it better myself, the Muezzin said. Indeed, for half the day, my calling keeps me close to the affairs of the Prophet that I could not think of inclining the upper part of my body any further in the direction of Mecca than is prescribed by prayer. Moreover, a few days ago, I watched yet another one of my acquaintances set off on a pilgrimage to Mecca, where he promised to pray for me. Thus, the upper part of my body is well provided for. Ah, the old woman said, since you hold that your loftier needs are accounted for by your friend in Mecca, no doubt you feel yourself able to carry out such duties as the pilgrim in Mecca is neglecting meanwhile here in town. I can see that you're a clever woman, the Muezzin said. In no circumstances will you find me wanting in gratitude, either towards you or towards anyone else. Well, the old woman said, that being so, I will gladly do what I can to help you attain the goals that you desire. Nor do I think it should be very difficult if what you have in mind is to resume the activity so abruptly broken off by the newly married pilgrim to Mecca. The Mirazin then thanked the old woman, who went hurrying back to the young pilgrim's wife, to the pilgrim's young wife. And then the old woman said to the young woman, I've been thinking that your husband has treated you very badly and that you're greatly to be pitied. Why are you speaking ill of my husband? The young woman asked. I'm not speaking ill of your husband, but I must say that he has treated you badly with this unfinished baby. He should have finished making his wife's baby instead of being in such a hurry to carry out his father's wishes. What do you mean an unfinished baby? The young woman asked. Well, he never finished making the baby. It is only its body he completed. If the baby is born as it is now, it will have neither head nor limbs. He went away, lived away, leaving his work undone. And it is you who will have to bear the humiliation of giving birth to a cripple. What are you talking about? Are you sure what you're saying is true? I am sure that it is so, the old woman said. Ask anyone who knows anything about it. Only a few days ago, I was talking in much the same terms to the museum of the great Minaret, who is renowned for the excellence of his work on babies. How wicked my husband is. How wicked my husband is. But tell me, could the Muezzin help me? He is known for his excellence for his work with babies. Can he not help me complete the child? Yes, of course he can. You only have to ask. 
My friend, the young woman begged, please go quickly to the clever museum. Tell him to come here as soon as possible before it's too late. I will go at once, the woman said. When I shall tell the museum to come, when shall I tell the museum to come? Tell him to come as soon as he has time. And so the old woman went. She came to the museum and said, go to her now, my friend. The pilgrim's young wife wants to see you as soon as possible. And so thanking the old woman, the museum set out immediately. He came to the wife of the pilgrim to make her. The woman greeted him saying, I thank you for coming. My husband has left me with an unfinished baby and has gone on pilgrimage to Mecca without waiting to make a start on its limbs. I've asked you to come here so that you can complete the work in which you are said to be most skilled. I am happy to help you, the musician said. How long will it take you? Uh, it, it cannot be done all at one go, the musician said. This is work I want to do well. The more so since your husband is saying prayers for me in Mecca. That is good, that is good, the young woman said. But let's start at once so that no time is lost. Ah, then lie down on the angareb. I will put all my strength into the work at once. And so the young woman lay down on the angareb as she had been told. As for the musician, in following his urge, he also fulfilled his promise that he will put all of his strength into his work, doing so to such good purpose that the young woman said satisfied beyond all expectation. It is true. You are really much better at such work than my husband. Come back often. Continue the business you have begun. I promise you that I will, the musician said, and trust that I shall give you as much cause for satisfaction as I have this time. But you must let me know beforehand if you have any particular desires so I can act accordingly at the appropriate moment. Ah, seeing that you have so kindly expressed the wish to forestall my desires, perhaps you could see to it that the child is a boy, and if he is a boy, that he is given as excellent a tool for the business as you yourself possess. It would be a pity for the boy to have one that was as small and as feeble as his father's. All this I can promise you, for I flatter myself that it is precisely in detailed work such as this that I excel beyond all other. The young woman said, must you go already? Or could you perhaps go on working for a little while longer? Just now, I formed the baby's mouth, the musician said. If you are not tired, lie down and I will put its nose into position. I am very certainly far from being tired that I would object to you putting the nose into position. Indeed, it seems to me that your vigorous method of work suits me much better than my husband's softest ways. With these words, the young woman again laid down on the agarab and the reason put the nose so firmly into position that the prospective mother, under the pleasure of his skilled attentions, began to moan in pleasure. Thereafter, the reason went as often as he wished to visit the pilgrim's young wife, and she, for her part, was delighted beyond measure with his diligent labors. But in order to devote himself wholly and entirely to his work on the young woman, the musician sent his own wife, herself still young, but more familiar and therefore less interesting, to visit her parents for several months. Then he devoted himself with redoubled energy to the young wife of the pilgrim to Mecca. Meanwhile, the pilgrim, having duly said his prayers in Mecca, one day unexpectedly returned home. When his wife saw him coming, she could not bring herself to welcome him back joyfully. Indeed, she turned her back on him as he entered, paying no further attention to him. And upon his speaking kindly to her, she would not even answer him, but sullenly left the room. Then the pilgrim said to himself, something has been happening here. I must find out what it is. At the first opportunity, he again spoke kindly to his wife, but this time she turned and walked away. But the pilgrim said to his young wife, don't, don't go, stay here. Tell me why you will not answer me. Why do you look at me with such hostile eyes? The young wife turned to face her husband, looked at him very angrily and said, you ask why I am hostile towards you? 
Oh, it is because you're a bad husband, a very bad husband. To please your dead father, you went running off to Mecca, leaving me, your live young wife, with an unfinished baby. And just because you had broken off your work like that, I should have had to bear the humiliation of giving birth to a cripple. Now you can give thanks to the hard work of the muezzin, of the greatest minarets, who so excellently took up the labor you had failed to complete, and tirelessly went on adding limbs to the torso, nose, big toe, and all. On hearing this, the pilgrim to Mecca said to himself, so that is what has happened. But to his wife, he said nothing. The same day, he went to see the muezzin with whom he had already long been acquainted and told him that he had prayed for him in Mecca as promised. The two continued with their friendship, becoming even closer. The pilgrim particularly carefully nurtured this friendship, visiting the muezzin every day. Hence, it was not long before he learned that his new friend had sent his wife to a town a few days' journey away on a visit of several months to her parents. The pilgrim took careful note of this information. Moreover, he visited his friend so frequently that the latter could undertake nothing without his knowledge. For several days, the musician felt pleasantly relieved of the part-time occupation that he had been accustomed to practice. For the young wife of the pilgrim had shown herself exceptionally active of late while the big toes were in the process of being made and she had, moreover, given evidence of greater perseverance and receptivity than he was able in the long run to satisfy. Having enjoyed several pleasant and restful days in the company of his new friend, however, the musician once again began to wish for a renewal of his activity. So he said to himself, Of course, in the long run, the kind of woman that I should want would not be like the wife of this pilgrim to Mecca, a woman who is more active and with greater endurance than any man. I would indeed be very pleased if my own wife were to return to me, for in the long run, her gentle ways are more enjoyable, less exacting than the abandon of other women. Now, when the young pilgrim to Mecca heard this, he said to his friend, Tomorrow I shall be going away for a few days, and I shall visit such and such a town, naming the town where the musician's wife was staying with his parents-in-law. The musician heard this and thought to himself, Clearly this man is going away only in order to escape from his wife, and so recuperate for a few days. Now, since his own wife will have made considerable demands upon him, it would seem to me that for some time he will constitute little danger to other women. But out loud to the musing, out loud, out loud the musing said to the pilgrim, Do you know anyone you can stay with in that town? No, the pilgrim replied, I don't know anyone in that town. Ah, listen, my friend, by a happy coincidence, that coincidence, that town is the home of my parents-in-law, with whom my wife is present stay, presently staying. I will therefore give you a letter to my father-in-law, enabling you to stay with him. But when you return, I would beg you to do me a favor and bring my wife back under your care, making sure that nothing happens to her on your way across the desert. You know, the pilgrim to Mecca said, I did have another lodging in mind, but if such is your intention, my friend, I will gladly do as you wish. And so the following day, the pilgrim to Mecca set off with the letter and eventually arrived at the house of the musician's father-in-law. He stayed with them for a few days and then and then prepared to leave for home. His host requested him in accordance with the contents of his son-in-law's letter to take custody of his daughter and accompany her back to her husband, the musician. So the pilgrim to Mecca set off with the musician's wife, covering only a short distance and not undertaking a full day's march until the second day of the journey when they entered the desert. Though not long by ordinary standards, the march was arduous enough entailing as it did a night solitude in the wilderness with only a few trees for shelter. Thus, when the pilgrim to Mecca and the musician's wife came that evening in the lonely spot beneath the trees, they were very weary. 
the man said to the woman, listen, we are now in a very isolated spot and it would be well if one of us were to keep watch so that we are not taken unawares by the approach of thieves or wild beasts. Let me sleep for the first few hours so that I am quite refreshed. Then wake me and I will watch for the rest of the night so that you can go on sleeping without care or disturbance until morning. That suits me very well, the musician's wife said. And so the pilgrim to Mecca told her, wake me then when two hours have gone by. Then the pilgrim to Mecca lay down and at once fell asleep. But though the musician's wife was determined to remain awake, she was tired after the hardships of the day's march. And thus it happened that after a time, she too fell asleep. A little while later, the pilgrim to Mecca awoke. After making absolutely sure that the young woman was fast asleep, he went across to her and removed from throat, wrist, and hands all the gold ornaments that she was wearing, hiding them in his long robe. Then he lay down again where he had been before and slept until the following morning. When morning came, the musician's wife was the first to wake. She had once noticed the loss of all her ornaments. In great alarm, she woke the pilgrim to Mecca. Starting out of the sleep, he said, Why did you not wake me during the night? Something evil might easily have happened. Or well, something evil did happen, the musician's wife said. I was so tired and I fell asleep, and a thief came and robbed me of my gold ornaments. What? The pilgrim to Mecca leapt up, saying, A thief has robbed you. Come, we must look for his tracks in the sand, so that we know what direction he has taken. Look about on all sides, and I too will see what I can find. And so they looked and looked and looked. All I can see are the tracks we made ourselves while piling our baggage yesterday evening. Shaking his head, the pilgrim to Mecca said, this is a very serious matter. I too can see nothing else. How could it have happened? They both sat down. The pilgrim to Mecca considered and considered, and then he said, can you not think of anything? No, I can't. They considered for a few more minutes, and then the pilgrim to Mecca said, I have thought of something. Yes, but this, this is a difficult matter. Tell me what it is, the musician's wife said, for the loss of my jewelry is for me a great misfortune. Then here, O oh wife of my friend, the pilgrim to Mecca said, you know that as there are differences between men and women, I, I do know that, the woman said. Well, now in many women, the difference is thievish and given to stealing. Theft is a natural characteristic of the female difference. Generally, however, a woman's difference steals only from men. But if for any length of time it has not been able to steal from men, it may well steal something from its own mistress. Since there appear to be no strange footprints around, I can only suppose that your own difference, having for some time had no opportunity of robbing its husband, has now robbed you and concealed the booty within itself. That my difference likes to steal from men, I have, since my marriage, often had the occasion to notice. Moreover, recently, it has had no opportunity to steal. But tell me, how can the ornaments be recovered from the difference? Wagging his head, the pilgrim to Mecca said, it cannot be accomplished by a woman alone. A man has to introduce his own difference slowly and carefully into hers in order to search for it. It must be done, however, soon. Because after the theft, wait, my bad. It must be done, however, soon after the theft, and in addition, slowly and with care. For otherwise, the booty will disappear further and further inside. And as you know, it can only then come out in the form of a child. Otherwise, your difference will turn the jewelry into a stone baby. What? The woman cried in horror. I shall give birth to a stone baby? It would kill me. Yes, yes, indeed, it does kill women. The woman threw herself on the ground at the pilgrim's feet and begged, I implore you, please, try at once to see if you can retrieve the stolen objects from my difference, please. 
lie down then. I promise you that I will do my best to make your difference give up its booty. The woman lay down. And with the utmost caution, the pilgrim from Mecca began to search with his difference. And having continued for some time, in such a manner that the woman could not fail to sense his care and forethought. He reached down into his robe and brought out a bracelet. Yes, yes, that is the first. Let's do it again. After a short respite, therefore, the pilgrim took to one. Quick, quick, now look, look for more, look for more. And so the pilgrim searched again with his difference and produced the second bracelet. The woman was so delighted that she would have liked for him to continue his search without delay, but the pilgrim to Mecca insisted that they should first have their breakfast and a drink of wine from the bottle they had brought, which he thought would restore calm to their differences. But as a result of drinking the wine, the young woman became even more insistent that the search for her thieving difference be continued. Be continued. My difference does not at all object to your searching. It's every nook and cranny for the stolen jewelry, and it even seems to me to be more than willing than ever to restore the stolen objects. Indeed, each search appears to make it even more avid for another. The pilgrim to Mecca said, that is easily explained. For your difference stole your gold and precious stones only because it had for so long been unable to steal from a man. Hasten then, look for my necklace, the musician's wife said. So once again, the pilgrim to Mecca complied with her request, this time handing the woman her necklace after another careful search. Thus, the young woman had recovered all her jewelry and there was nothing to prevent the pilgrim to Mecca from resuming his journey in her company. But when they had both restored their strength with food and wine, the musician's wife said, Listen, O friendly man, a little while ago, a ring was lost in my father's house. Now I think it's very possible that my difference was responsible for the theft of that object. I would therefore be very much obliged to you if you would search for it far back in my difference. The pilgrim to Mecca in whom the wine had induced a further desire for the agreeable person replied, Certainly, O friendly mistress of a thievish difference, I will do so at once. And so the pilgrim to Mecca, therefore, began his search for the fourth time, conducting it with such thoroughness and energy that finally the musician's wife could not help letting wind. The pilgrim to Mecca, who, in any case, had reached the end of his strength, now remarked, Did you hear? Just now, your difference swore quite plainly that no more stolen gold or precious stones are hidden away inside it. And with these words he rose. The young woman also got up saying, Indeed, I heard it. Moreover, I can now feel my difference. I thank you. The pilgrim to Mecca and a young woman, after resting for a little while, set off once more and duly arrived in town. The pilgrim in Mecca, the pilgrim to Mecca at once, went off to find his wife and his companion. The pilgrim to Mecca at once went off his, to find his wife and his companion went off to find her husband, the musician. The musician welcomed his wife with great joy and since he had for some time led an extremely retired life, manifested his pleasure with so much assiduity. But his wife fended him of saying, oh, on the way here I met with a cruel misadventure for which you are responsible. As you know, women's differences are very thievish. And as you also know, they usually steal only from men. But since you left me so long ago with my parents, thus depriving my difference of all the opportunity of satisfying its natural desire to steal, it robbed me during the night of all my precious stones and gold and silver jewelry in order to turn into a stone baby whose birth would have killed me. Now you can thank the friendly pilgrim to Mecca who so promptly and conscientiously recovered the jewelry piece by piece from the thief, finally extracting from it the oath that it had stolen nothing further of that kind. If it had not been for the efforts of his difference, I would now, thanks to your neglect, be faced with certain death. 
On hearing this, the musician went out saying to himself, ah, this man appears to have managed the business of Bartha so thoroughly that it seems improbable that my wife will respond kindly to my advances for several days. For several days. As the musician went on his way, he met the pilgrim to Mecca and said, Ah, you have brought back my wife so safely that I can hardly thank you adequately for your unremitting care. How else could I have repaid you for the way you came to my assistance on an earlier occasion? The pilgrim to Mecca said. And so ends this story. All right, friends, what do we think of this one? Oof, we have more people. All right, let me see. Make sure everybody has the ability to speak. Yes, let's hear it, friends. What do you all think of this one? That was a very interesting, that was a very interesting tit for tat, all pun intended. Uh, but, but it's intriguing that these women did not know enough of their own bodies to know that the men were full of it until it was probably too late. You know, Sonia, you, you literally read my mind because I, I, I was in the middle of this story and I was kind of kicking myself because what I was going to say before I started reading this story was this particular one illustrates the urgent need for sex education. <laughs> Because, I mean, it, 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 yeah, like the, the idea that these women would, so, it, I mean, of course, this is a story, right? So the men who told the stories are more than likely full of it. But I, you know, I, I, I can recall at least one play from my childhood, which featured a similar theme, you know, a girl just not knowing enough about her own anatomy. She's taken advantage of by an older man who, who, knows what he's doing um but right right there with you you know bring let's let's have more sex education so people are not carried away with half-formed babies and you know <laughs> stone babies the, the second one was was especially interesting because at first i i didn't get it you know i was thinking difference what is he talking about jewelry stone babies and then it hit and i was like wow okay <laughs> that that's different you know wink wink that's different so but yeah yeah absolutely yes for sex education yes for sex education any any other thoughts on this one i was going to say i think the only um other suggestion would be if the words are lying about like something different you know rafia that's that's something else too right what if what if these women knew exactly what was going on and were just taking the opportunity to have a little dalliance on the side, huh? Wouldn't that be something? Exactly. And another thing I was considering was how um, in sort of in societies that require women to do virgins until they get married, they don't really know about their sexuality until they get married. And that's when they sort of start to mean, like, you know, okay, oh, my husband can't testify me or this and that. So that could also be another reason to want to explore more. True, 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 true. You know, and that, that really, really is a great point. You know, you have a society where women are kind of sheltered and cloistered. More than likely, it's when they get married that they, they get to know certain things. But what you, your, your initial point though was was really interesting, Rafiat. It would really be you know uh, like a 
what was it you said, Sonia, tit for tat, double cross, like it would just be utterly brilliant if these women knew exactly what was going on and, you know, decided to take advantage of of the situation and, you know, play the cards they were dealt. That that would be something. That would definitely be something. Any other thoughts on this particular story or on the first one? No. Anyone? Because we are coming up to the end of our time together. So, go ahead, Mukuka. Yeah, I, I, I also struggled to believe um, the naivety of the women. The, in the description in the, the first part of the story, the while well, the man is in Mecca, the woman experiences um, pleasure that the the man, the husband, is unable was unable to to give her. She's even confident enough to draw a comparison between them, and it's even um, explicit enough to even mention the act of mourning in, in the sexual act. Um, I think there's there's too much going on to assume naivety. I, I'm inclined to believe that um, <laughs> they had awakened from it, but um, yeah, you know, there's sometimes we all get into a naivety. That's kind of deliberate, but we convince ourselves that um, it's not what we think. It's a little like um, when someone offers you, um, like, um, I'm getting a pleasure or money from from a person where I did not solicit it, but I know I'm not supposed to get it. But I come mm. my head into saying, no, I didn't ask for it. This is not corruption. This is not a corrupt act. Mm. That, that kind of naivety I think is what is present in the woman's mind like ah, he's helping me do something but deep down there's the added pleasure true 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 I think it kind of ties back to um, Rafia's point you know that what if these women really did know what was going on and were just you know going with the story because they were enjoying what was going on you know the, the pleasure they were getting out of it which I think will add, you know, an extra layer of of intrigue to the story, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and he convinces them that um, it's for their own good. That's that's kind of deceptive, you know. <laughs> right, right. No, I, I I think, like I said, the the second time, especially, you know, I was thinking to myself, how could she possibly fall for this? You know, how could she possibly fall for something like this? But then, you know, between the very real possibility of that much naivety, because, you know, you have to think about some of the settings of these stories. Um, I imagine these were quite, you know, young women. You know, women at that point in time, you know, were probably in their mid to late teens when they when they got married, you know, which is why I struggle with some of the stories in this book, because, you know, they reflect the times in which they were, they were gathered. So probably not someone who, you know, is well educated on, you know, bodily functions and things like that. And if it's a community where they don't have strong women communities that offer, you know, initiation, teaching, and, you know, what the kind of knowledge that would prepare a woman for marriage, um, then, you know, there is absolutely that possibility that these women were just as naive as, as they portray themselves to be in this in this story which again speaks to the importance of sex education because good lord yeah 
Yeah, and uh, anyone marked on the the complicitness of the the old the older woman who the man went to make her trusted. You know, you know, that's that's definitely something <laughs> something to take note of. And it 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 you know kind of raises the 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 issue of you know how how communities work sometimes. You know, you kind of have to have your head you know on right. Because sometimes you will trust the wrong person. And another way to look at this, you know, because I don't know how things work where you're you're from. But sometimes, you know, women have their, their ways in which they communicate with each other. And it might just be that this old woman knew that this young girl was sexually frustrated and facilitated a way for her to get access to some, some good good. You know what I'm saying? So <laughs> the old woman knew that this young girl was sexually frustrated and facilitated a way for her to get access to some some good good you know what i'm saying so you know it could be complicitness but then if you spin it on its head as rafiad was saying you know with the women kind of organ you know positioning themselves right knowing what's going on but playing along um it could very well be that this old woman was just trying to get help this girl get get some good action going so but who knows Mokuka? who knows right yeah I have another question. Mm-hmm. Um, with the with the nature of the narration that we have from this story, um, and the previous one you read, it kind of um, gives me the question of how, at what point did we mystify the act of sex? Because the, um, the man in the earlier story was talking to the man, to his friends about it, and it was sort of painted as um, not something that he could be ashamed to say. Mm-hmm. Now, is it... Um, I, I I run the risk of um of eating a few nerves. Is it a, is it something that came with the Christianization of the society, or is it a natural evolution of our society that um we now have um, this mystification of uh, sex as um, a sacrosanct subject, very sacred. We cannot we cannot refer to it even to the factor of resenting something like sexual education in some of our communities. Hmm. You know, that's an interesting question, Mokuka. I I always thought that it was just the great misfortune of African people that the the era of Europeans who came to the African continent was like that Victorian period, which has to be one of the most sexually repressed, you know, era, especially amongst the British. Because Europe had its own cycles of, you know, sexual expression and repression and you know, the the sordidness that under, underlay a lot of that sexual repression, right? Because I've talked about this before. If you read some of the erotica that comes out of some of the most prim and proper eras of European history, it's it's insane. It's insane. It There was just crazy things going on underneath the surface. But you have to remember that the people who came to Africa the most were missionaries, you know, academics, administrative people who had an agenda. Right, they didn't just show up; they showed up with an agenda, and that agenda was basically taking control. And one of the main ways you can take control of a people is to weaken their sense of who they are, and that involves kind of breaking their culture, right? So I think uh, that that has a lot to do with it. The fact that one of the main ways in which the African continent, African people, were subdued by colonization was through religion. And, you know, one of the main things that religion, you know, be it 
Islam or Christianity, one of the main contentions that that these religions have is their their relationship with sex. And when you think about the fact that many African communities, you know, they, it was on a spectrum. You know, they were very conservative societies, but they were also very, you know, sexually open societies. So these these Europeans met with all kinds of things and. You know, in order to get a hold, get a hold of things, there there was a an active effort to suppress there. Um, it's always interesting reading some of the accounts that the missionaries, especially, wrote back because they they used the most colorful language to describe. You know, it contributed a lot to why um, people were uh, African people were perceived as savages because there was a freedom with sexuality that these people had not seen in their own societies for a long time, and because of that, they imagined themselves you know, to be to be enlightened, even though in those same societies you scratch just a little bit below the surface and you're seeing all kinds of crazy things, right? So I, I think that has to do with that. But also over time, I think with 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 us African people adopting some of these religions and just, the, the, I've talked about this too before, the fact that in, in a chaotic environment, right, especially the kind of chaos that big, macro level changes like colonization would wreck on a society, people will look for whatever it is they can get any sense of order out of. You know, and religion has become one of those things, right? And then you throw in, you know, control issues and, you know, people wanting to control others and things like that. It just so happens that sexuality is one of the ways in which, you know, control can be established getting a, a, a people to kind of lose a sense of who they are. And we see that not just on the African continent, all across the world, right? It's why the LGBTQIA community struggles so much across the world, because you have one group of people who who see their sexual expression as as divine, as, as dangerous. And so there's an effort to control there. It's why across the world, men and women, you know, will have a lot of the struggles because there's one group's effort to control the other and then pressure in the opposite direction. But it's because, you know, sex by its nature is such, you know, an important human act, not just for recreate for um for reproduction, but also for recreation, for pleasure, for feeling a sense of being alive. And so it, it will always have this cloud around it. It's just a question of what kind of cloud. Is it gonna be a dark cloud or is it going to be a you know fertile cloud that brings rain and grows good things. I don't know if that's speaking at all to, to to your question. And of course, anybody else in the room who can speak to it more coherently than I can, absolutely. Um, both, let's hear. Hi, good evening. Hello. Uh, so I wasn't here for the entirety of the second story, but then the little I hear and from what I gathered from what you just read, it's that the region where the story is from, it's highly influenced by what you call it the islam religion yeah Yeah. it's a muslim religion and then uh, i'm getting a lot of it's the way the men resorts to trickery to extract consent from the various women and then it's it's very it's rape it's pure rape what what just happened in the story is rape coupled with the night the naivety of the, the the what you call it both of the women and then it's very clear that they lack sex education, and for some reason, I'm 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 almost not doubting the the what you call it, uh, what you call it. Oh, I'm not doubting the the authenticity of the story. It's it's very probable and even uh, what you call it, this century, because I I 
I'm not saying uh, that, that what you call it, Muslims are primitive when it comes to sex education, but then uh, it's 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 public. It's what you call it. It's it's public knowledge that uh, the what you call it, sex is almost a taboo in in their religion. Yeah, so it's it's almost like I see it happening even today. The story we just read. I don't know. That's what I think, but then I, I really don't. No, thank you. Thank you for raising that issue because it, the, the question of consent is one of the hot topics that is being explored today, especially on social media. And the, the idea that if a person goes into a sexual act without being fully aware of what they are doing and the circumstances and all of that, then it can be considered a sexual assault of some kind. Um, that is a really, really great point. And I'm glad you brought it up because one of the things that, one of the advantages kind, um, that is a really, really great point. And I'm glad you brought it up because one of the things that, one of the advantages of being able to have these discussions is then being able to examine attitudes that we had in the past and think about how they are interpreted in today's world, right? Um, we talked about the fact that these were probably very young women, um, naive, probably not, you know, very well educated in matters of sex. So these men absolutely did take advantage of them. Um, of course, highlights the need for sexual education. So, and it's why I'm saying there are some stories in this book, which honestly, I'm not going to read because they, they take it a little bit further than, you know, I feel comfortable coming up with. But yeah, you are right. You know, there is there is a perspective to be put on this is that in, in that, you know, the absence of informed consent, I think is the word, then we are venturing into sexual assault territory. So yeah, no, thank you for raising that point, both. All right. We are... I was going to say, we also have to take in consideration that this was stories shared by men to a stranger in their community. They may have led themselves to think that the women didn't know what was going on because it made them feel like they had the upper hand. Right. So again, it goes back to Rafiat's point that she made earlier, you know, were the women naive or were they just taking advantage of the, the circumstances to get you know, a little bit of pleasure for themselves under circumstances where they would not have, you know, there is the fact that the, the one woman was like, you know, you're doing it even better than my husband could. I hope my child, you know, grows up to be like you. Can we say for certain, we can only go with what's in the story, which is the obvious manipulation. But if there's one thing I know is that you, you really can't fall one way or another on stories like this. We have to take it at face value, right? Um, but we're also human beings in the communities we live with and in, we live in, and we know the ways in which people finagle themselves into whatever positions they want to finagle themselves into to get what they want. So, um, yeah, that's that's really all I can say about that. But that, that is a great point, Sonia. These were stories told by men to other men. And, you know, there is that tendency to give yourself the pat on the back, like, oh, I got away with something X, Y, Z. So, yeah. Any other thoughts on this one before we close up for the day? I'm going to ask what Sonia said, because um, that's something that I thought of as well. You 
know, in a patriarchal society, there would be more of a reason to paint women as being more naive and not controlling mm-hmm. or not expecting, you know, what was going to happen. Because, I mean, if they were married, I'm, I'm sure they'd feel something at least. You know, it's making me making me think about the story of the Sunny. I don't know if any of you were here for that one. The male gigolo who none of the men, not a single one of the men in that community knew what the Sunny. I remember that. I remember that. But story. every single one of the women knew exactly what the Sunny was and was more than happy to welcome one into their house because they knew what they were getting out of the deal, right? While the husbands were just all completely ignorant to it. But again, we can only really go with what is in the story, right? But the, the beauty of, you know, reading them aloud and having conversations about it is that then we get to explore the angles. You know, was there manipulation? Absolutely. Was it, you know, quick, a situation of, you know, dubious consent? Absolutely. But could it also be that these were women, you know, just taking advantage of the cover of taking advantage of the cover of ignorance to get some pleasure on the side without necessarily having to pay for it? Could be as well.